I want to invite you to grab your Bible, if you have it with you. If not, you're welcome to keep and use the pew Bible that's there to Mark chapter 6. Very beginning of Mark chapter 6, I believe it's 703 in the pew Bible. And let us hear the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that he's been given, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown... Among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Thought a plane was landing. Um, (laughs) He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if anyone, any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is said that familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. The proverbial wisdom here is that the more knowledge we have about something, the closer our association with someone, the less respect the less openness, the less honor we give to them or it. Those who have become familiar with us over the years and therefore believe they know us best often can take us for granted. Ironically, those who are closest to us are usually the ones less inclined to expect or to perceive changes in us. Prior assessments, earlier opinions, about us tend to be hard to shake. Sometimes that those we love <laughs> even get a little bit annoyed when we try to break out of the frame that they've put around us. When we display unforeseen gifts, rise beyond our perceived status, those whom we hope would be our greatest allies oftentimes become our harshest critics. Jesus knows all too well what this feels like. As we return to the Gospel of Mark, you heard it. Jesus goes home. He goes back to Nazareth. Based on the disciples he brings with him, not to mention the large crowds that trail after him, as we've seen chapter upon chapter, Jesus is drawing a lot of attention. In many ways, you might say that Jesus' reputation precedes him before he gets back home. But that's the problem. That's the trouble. The trouble is, it's not the reputation. It's not the kind of attention with which he left Nazareth. As Jesus returns, the home crowd, being familiar with his family, having been present during his upbringing, 
And well aware of his skills, his training, his prior employment, the hometown crowd believes they already know Jesus. Now you'd think that people who knew Jesus best would be the first to follow him. But in fact, Mark tells us quite plainly that they are more than just a little put off, a little put out by what they hear Jesus saying and doing. Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the carpenter? Where did he get given this power? Where did he get given this power? Notice that they don't perceive his power and authority are his own. Instead, they're convinced it must have come from some external source. Notice also that the hometown crowd is not put off or put out by what Jesus teaches or the reality of his miracles. We're told that many of them were amazed. They're offended by Jesus. Collectively, they fail to see. Together, they struggle to accept Jesus for who he is. Since Jesus spent the bulk of his childhood there, not to mention his adult life among them, apparently, they had already sized up Jesus before he left home. Do you remember one of the adages that comes up about Nazareth, Nazareth when it comes up in one of the other Gospels? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, if it's a popular saying like that is known to the people in the town, so add that sort of the mix, the idea being, uh, Jesus can't be anybody special because we're just ordinary working class folk here. Haven't you heard? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nazareth is just any town USA. See, as Jesus returns, he doesn't fit into the box that his friends and family decide he belongs in. And so as a result, you heard it, as a result of their own preconceived notions, as a result of their long-held opinions, they are prevented from truly encountering and experiencing Jesus for who he is. They may not have consciously put it this way, but the really, really what it is is the people that day were offended by the incarnation. What we just celebrated at Advent, we just celebrated at Christmas, they were offended by the idea that God actually became a human being. That was the scandal. That was the stumbling block. I mean, I don't know if consciously they would have put it that way, but that's the issue. That's the disconnect. The incarnation is the scandal, the stumbling block. And it's still the scandal and the stumbling block for many people. We live in a world in, that's continuing, continually changing, and we live in times where, you know, most people are willing to believe these days, most, not all, in a moral law of the universe. We live in times where people are willing to, to give credence to this implicit, implicit sense of right and wrong that's given to us by a higher power, that people of all cultures must obey. Most people are willing to believe that. We live in a time where people are very, has a heightened interest in spirituality and more, more and more people, not all, but many people are willing to believe that there's a divine spark in all of us. This sense of spirituality, there's a religious impulse that's started growing within our world today, heightened maybe even by science with the God gene that's been identified in humanity. Every culture of the world throughout history, we know this, every culture of the world throughout history has had some kind of place of worship, whatever it is. An orientation to look up or look within to pray to a creator. Most people can believe that as well. A God of morality, a God of spirituality, a God of creativity. That makes sense to most of us. We can wrap our arms around that. But to believe that God could come to us through a human being, that's pushing it. 
I mean, did you allow it to push you again at Advent and Christmas? I mean, we're so used to it. Do we really understand how that sounds? A God who comes to us through a human being is pushing it. It still pushes it today in our world. Many people cannot figure out what to do with Jesus and they can't just totally dismiss him. And we live in a world where many people try to deal with Jesus by calling Jesus a great teacher. By saying, no, Jesus was a good guy. He was, okay, he was a wise prophet. You know, he was a noble martyr. He was an inspiring revolutionary. But here's the thing, if you really know Jesus, if you really listen to what he says, if you really pay attention to what he does, if you recognize the authority he claims, those accolades, while nice, those acknowledgments, while respectful, are simply not enough. I think in my entire life, no one has perhaps expressed this more clearly and more succinctly than C.S. Lewis. What I'm about to share, if you haven't heard it before, you need to go pick up a copy of Mere Christianity and read this part, where C.S. Lewis sort of takes all the ways in which we try to deal with Jesus and boils it down to three possibilities based upon what Jesus says and what Jesus does and what the scriptures say about him. And Lewis says there's only three possibilities when you encounter Jesus, when you really know Jesus. Either one, he's a liar. He's a liar for the, to say the things he said about himself, to do the things that he's either a liar and as dangerous as the devil himself in his deceit. Or he's a lunatic. He's a crazy man. To say the things that he said, to claim the things he claimed, he's insane and insane in a dangerous way. Someone who's like a cult leader. You don't want to follow him because it's not going to end well. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's exactly who he said he was, exactly who he claimed to be. Truth is, Jesus rarely fits into the box that others try to put him in. I told you last week the decorations would get put away. Don't try to put Jesus away with the decorations. Some of you may not have heard me. Jesus does not fit in the boxes that we try to put him in. Who he claims to be, who he reveals himself to be. Beloved, it's the scandal of all history. It's the scandal of all history. A man who is God, a man who is God. And by the way, not just a God, the God of all gods. The God who dies. Not the God who sacrifices others, the God who sacrifices himself. The man who is God, who is not just savior of the world, but the Lord of all creation. The man who is God, who insists that following him, being in relationship with him, depending upon him is the way, the truth, and the life. No exceptions, no substitutes. And yet we live in a world more and more where we try to find exceptions and we try to make substitutes. And Jesus says, no way. I am the way. No other truth, I am the truth. No other life, I am the life. My brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to suggest is that this week's text may be more of a mirror for us than we care to admit. We might be more like the people of Nazareth than we realize. What I'm trying to say this morning is that our familiarity with Jesus can oftentimes be a serious liability in our call to follow Jesus. As amazing as Jesus is, and everyone notices he's amazing, as likable as he is for those of us who've received and believe in him, beloved, we can allow ourselves to become so familiar with Jesus that he rarely surprises or challenges us anymore. 
that he rarely surprises or challenges us anymore. I've, I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. Symptoms of this kind of over-familiarity with Jesus include, symptoms of this kind of over-familiarity include, we speak for Jesus rather than to Jesus. We put our words and our thoughts in Jesus' mouth. It's almost as if Jesus was a mannequin and we put our hand in the back of his head and just move his mouth to say what we want him to say. And we do it on both ends. We speak for Jesus rather than to Jesus on both sides, positive and negative. On the negative side, some of us are piling on guilt and shame upon ourselves or guilt and shame upon other people in the name of Jesus, but it's not coming from the mouth of Jesus. And some of us on the flip side, on the positive side, are pouring all kinds of permission and license to do things, to stay in situations, to be a part of things, again, in the name of Jesus, but not coming from the mouth of Jesus. We're over-familiar with Jesus when we're speaking for him rather than to him. We're over-familiar with Jesus when we anticipate that Jesus should act or behave in a certain way. You know you're over-familiar with Jesus when, oddly enough, ironically, the way that Jesus should act or behave is exactly the way that we think things should go. And, and again, it's on both sides of the spectrum, be it broad social issues, I'm sure all of you are convinced that Jesus is a part of the same political party that you are. Of course. Or it can be on more smaller, intimate family matters, relationships. I'm sure that you believe that Jesus is on your side, in your family, in that relationship. That Jesus is, I mean, it's exactly what Jesus would do, what he would say. See, in both cases... Be it, be it the broad political social issues or the smaller relational issues, it's the ironic thing, the odd thing is Jesus always ends up saying or doing what we expect. We rarely, if ever, in either those big issues or those smaller issues, we rarely, if ever, find ourselves humbled, surprised, astounded, and here's that word again, maybe even offended by Jesus. Now, some of you might be sitting here today and going, <laughs> Why is that so wrong? I mean, Jesus is with me 10 out of 10 times. Why is that a problem? Why is that so bad? I mean, if Jesus and if, I, if we're that close, we've, if I've got it that right, why are you popping my balloon, pastor? Because here's the thing. The problem with that is this. It doesn't line up with the biblical witness. It doesn't line up with the words of Scripture what the Bible reveals to us. Do you notice, if we could say anything about Jesus, one of the things we can say consistently is that what we see again and again with Jesus is that Jesus is always coloring outside the lines. You read the Gospels, all four of them, you go on in Acts, and one of the things you consistently see is Jesus is always shocking and surprising everyone. I challenge you to find anyone in Scripture who's not shocked or surprised by Jesus at some point. John the Baptist, his own mother, the disciples, Pilate, Herod. Jesus consistently shocks and surprises everyone. That's the biblical witness. Yeah, but, but we go, well, I'm not surprised by Jesus anymore. Jesus just kind of lines up with everything I think and believe. Really? Really? Let me tell you the other reason why that doesn't work. It doesn't agree with the invitation and challenge that Jesus gives to us. What is that challenge? What's the great commission, the great commandment? Jesus' invitation and challenge is for us to continually learn from him, to grow with him, to be transformed by him. And that invitation and challenge to, again, learn from him, grow with him, to be transformed by him, that invitation and challenge remains until he comes back or he brings us home. 
But some of us think that that invitation and challenge was that moment when we dropped on our knees and gave our lives to Christ. That's every day of our lives. So if you're not experiencing offense, challenge, if you're not experiencing tension in that relationship, then you're missing something. Because Jesus is going to continue, continues to ask us to learn from him, to grow with him, to be transformed, him, to be changed until he comes back or brings us home. So let's do a little attitude check this morning. How has Jesus offended us lately? How has Jesus offended you lately? And again, if you're struggling to answer that question, if that's like, I never expected to be asked that question, how has Jesus offended me? Let me prime the pump a little bit. As disciples, which I believe, I hope we are, as lifelong learners of Jesus, I'm fairly confident that we're not in 100% alignment with Jesus. What I am 100% sure about is that Jesus does not agree, Jesus does not comply, and Jesus does not affirm all of what we are saying and doing. That Jesus is not agreeing, complying, or affirming all of our political and social positions or all of our relational decisions and actions. If that's true, where is Jesus offending you? Where is Jesus offending us lately? If this thought, what I just shared, has never occurred to us before, if this reality that Jesus isn't 100% in alignment with us has never set in, then please allow me to suggest that maybe we don't know Jesus as well as we think we do. The longer we're in the church, the more familiar we become with the concepts, the ideas, the language about Jesus, the more we must be careful, beloved, not to become complacent in our faith in Jesus the more we must be careful not to reduce Jesus to an inoffensive moral nicety. And I'm, I'm sorry, but for many of us, what a friend we have in Jesus is as far as we go. And we have a friend in Jesus, but Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, and he means to change our lives. He means to not leave us where we are or as we are. And that means we are going to get pushed. We are going to get stretched. We are going to get offended Beloved, I'll say it this plainly. If we're not offended by Jesus, then we really don't know Jesus. If we're not offended by Jesus, then we really don't know Jesus. Because encountering Jesus, truly knowing Jesus, if you truly encounter Christ, and if you've had those experiences where you've truly encountered Christ, if you truly come to know Jesus, you see it in Scripture, we see it in our world. When Jesus is truly known and encountered, it turns our world upside down. It turns our lives inside out. And again, not just once in our lives, but every time. Jesus confronts us in our lives with the truth. And the truth in Jesus, do you notice this? The truth of Jesus, the truth in Jesus, it has this way of making us speak less and listening more. When we confront the truth of Christ, the truth in Christ, we have this tendency to move more slowly and intentionally rather than to just wander around in the wilderness. So, beloved, however young you are, however old you are, if you don't feel like you're still learning to walk, if you don't feel like you're continually training for a marathon rather than a sprint, then you're probably ignoring the truth. The truth of Jesus, the truth about Jesus. In fact, what we're probably doing is making up our own truth about Jesus. Following Jesus... <laughs> 
is a lot more about stubbing, stubbed toes and foots in our mouth. You know how you know you're following Jesus? Because your toes take a heck of a beating. And because your foot is always in your mouth all the time. That's how you know you're following Jesus. Because Jesus tells us, he shows us, he models for us what is right and wrong. And do you notice something? When Jesus tells us, when he shows us, when he models for us what's right and wrong, those lessons that Jesus teaches us, they don't make us more confident about our own opinions. They make us more dependent upon his wisdom and guidance. So if we're here today, and in fact, we're, we're, we're priding ourselves in our own sense of rightness, in our own sense of justice, if we find ourselves being more prideful about our own rightness and justice rather than being more and more reliant upon grace, if we sit here today and for us it's more about being right all the time in the eyes of others than it is about willing to do what is right, even at the risk of being wronged by those around us, then we may be acting in the name of Jesus, but we are not necessarily standing with Jesus. Again, following Jesus is more about confessing what you don't know. Following Jesus is more and more confessing what you don't know. Following Jesus is about repenting of what you thought you knew. When you follow Jesus, you find yourselves confessing how much you don't know, and you find yourself repenting of what you thought you knew. So, beloved, if we honestly engage Jesus as he is, for who he is, where does Jesus offend us today? I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes the best way to answer this question is to be honest about where Jesus has disappointed me. You see, what I tend to find is we, we, tend, we, 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 we take offense at Jesus. We don't even have to be talked into it. We take offense at Jesus when he doesn't act or do what we think he should. Offense is an, an automatic impulse when Jesus isn't who we think he ought to be. And I want to suggest that for many of us, that idea of being offended by Jesus, of confronting that Jesus isn't who or what we want him to be, is a deeper problem for many of us than we often realize. Back in the text, remember, remember what so deeply offended the people in Jesus' hometown was that God would come in the flesh of a person they knew. Even if that's consciously not how they would say it, the problem was the familiarity. What, it, what deeply offended them was that this revelation, this power, this authority would come in the flesh of a person they knew, a man by the name of Jesus from their own town of Nazareth. Do you put yourselves in their shoes? Can you think about what it was like for them? Can we have a little sympathy? Maybe, maybe as Jesus was arriving on the scene, coming back home, maybe they envisioned something a bit more dramatic and earth-shaking. I mean, we're talking about the salvation of the world, right? Perhaps they anticipated someone with a little, little, who was a little bit more distinctive and compelling, bigger than Moses, greater than Elijah. After all, he's supposed to be the long-awaited Messiah, isn't he? And God is with us in Nazareth. Salvation comes to Nazareth through someone who grew up like every other kid in this small, nondescript town. He wasn't even the class valedictorian. He wasn't even the high school sports superstar. He wasn't even the whiz kid. God is with us. Salvation comes through a blue-collar carpenter who many of us hired or worked alongside for years. Jesus was too familiar. Jesus was too ordinary. Jesus was too commonplace to be the vessel of God's voice, to be the revelation of God's presence in their lives. 
And beloved, I'm convinced that Jesus continues to offend us in this way as well. We too get put off and put out when God comes to us in common and ordinary ways. Allow me to present a startling disconnect that I've shared before, a startling disconnect that exists within the family of God, a startling disconnect that exists among the brothers and sisters, the friends of Jesus Christ today. On the one hand, we identify ourselves with Jesus. I assume all of us are here, we would call ourselves Christians. And we call ourselves Christians because either we grew up in a Christian home or we've been a part of the church for a couple of years. And as a, in doing that, we've heard stories. We've heard the stories about Jesus. We've done Bible studies about Jesus. We've read devotionals from Jesus, Jesus Calling. We maybe have even memorized the red letter sections of our Bible. You know, the actual words of Jesus. We've prayed the way Jesus taught us to pray. We learned that when we were kids. We can say it right now. If I snap my fingers and I say the first word, you'll repeat it. We pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. We just sang and we're going to sing some more. We sing songs about Jesus to Jesus. So if you're with me, naturally, knowing Jesus so well, who he is, what he taught, what he did, you'd think in our family, in our community, and it's not just extended to grace, it's bigger than that, you'd think we'd be encountering Jesus a lot in our lives, experiencing his authority and power around our circles of influence all the time. But as I've shared before, what's been driving us for the last year or so is the secret now becoming more public confession, not just at a grace, but, but beyond the secret and now public confession that most of us don't hear much from Jesus in the immediacy of our daily lives. The secret and more public confession that's coming is, it's an, and it's honest, but it's a still troubling acknowledgement among many of us that why, while we may every so often, we might ask, what would Jesus do? We rarely notice or perceive what Jesus is doing right here, right now, in our world. Think about that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the following. I just, I just wish Jesus would speak directly to my life and tell me what to do. I just wish Jesus would speak directly to my life and tell me what to do. And if I'm in that situation pastorally, if that person says that to me, I'll ask them to share what's been happening around them. Even more specifically, I'll ask them to what others have been sharing with them in relation to what they're trying to hear from Jesus. And the first challenge in this situation is for that person to respond by saying, I haven't told anybody else. I haven't asked anybody else about it. It's between me and Jesus. Come on. It's private. Do you know the most offensive thing about this Kairos card to many of you? And I've actually had one person who came up and said it exactly like this. I'll fill this out, but that part where it says to share with someone else, I'm not doing that. This is my thing. This is me and Jesus. I'm not sharing that with somebody else. The first challenge is to say, you know what? I'm not sharing that with somebody else. Friends, <laughs> we believe in the incarnation. We just celebrated it at Advent and Christmas. We believe that God came in the flesh in and through our humanity. Here's the thing. He didn't just do it once. He does it all the time. 
That's why the church is called the body of Christ. God speaks through his word and by his spirit. Absolutely. But God speaks through his word and by his spirit through his people. If you're not talking, sharing, or asking others, of course you're not hearing Jesus speak to you. Duh! (laughs) But let's assume, but let's assume that the person I'm talking to is sharing it with others. Let's go back to what the statement was. I wish Jesus would speak directly to me and tell me what to do. And let's say that that person, I listen to them, I ask them what's been happening around them, I ask them what other people have been saying to them, and they have been sharing with others. They disclose to me what the people closest to them are saying. They might even ask me in the context of what they've shared, what do you think God wants me to do? And in prayer and discernment, I tell them. (laughs) To which they respond by saying, I just wish I would hear something from Jesus. (laughs) You are. You have. Jesus is talking to you, but you aren't listening. No, 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 no. I want Jesus to really talk to me. I want to hear Jesus' voice in my life. Hey, friend, you are. You just did. Jesus has really been talking directly to you, but you're not paying attention. Beloved, Jesus is speaking to us and acting among us all the time. And let me just stop and say, if you don't believe that, and I'm not baiting you, I mean this, if you don't believe that statement, if that's, we can't embrace that, then please talk to me after this service. Jesus is speaking to us and acting among us all the time. Otherwise, why are we here? But somehow, even though I can say that, and I assume you're with me on that, that Jesus is speaking to us and acting among us all the time, but somehow it offends us that Jesus would speak and reveal himself through such common and ordinary people like a pastor or a spouse or one of your kids or your friends. And let me make this clear. It's not just one person that Jesus speaks to. Don't anyone leave and think there's only one person who speaks for Jesus in your life. It's the whole, the collective whole. It's the community that our Father places around us. And that's why it matters. It matters so much whom God has placed in our lives. That's why it's important to discern God's call in terms of who we surround ourselves with. By the way, any teenagers who are present, college students, I'm talking to you. That's why it matters to discern who God has called you to surround your life with. If those are the people speaking into your life and you go, I never hear Jesus, maybe there's a relationship there. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that Jesus consistently comes to us and talks to us in common and ordinary ways, so much so that we don't often even hear the voice of God because it's so common and it's so ordinary. Sometimes, though, it's not that we don't notice Jesus speaking and acting through those persons. If we're really honest, sometimes it's that we're offended, that we're put out or put off that Jesus comes to us through whom he does. Why does it have to be my spouse? Why does it have to be one of my kids? Do you know how I'm how humbling it is to have God speak to you through your teenage daughter or son? 
Why does it have to be my mom or dad? They're right all the time anyway. Come on. Why does it have to be my pastor? Why does it have to be him or her? You know, who says that person? Those people know me so well that they know the will of God for my life. He or she, they, they don't sound like God. He or she, they don't look like Jesus. What's so special? What's so different among, among him or her? And where do they get that power and authority? Does this sound familiar? <laughs> Beloved, Jesus is consistently speaking and working in and through our lives, but more often than not, we are not recognizing or hearing Jesus because we are too busy being offended by those he comes to us through. I can't tell you in that conversation how often when I reflect that back, that person will, will, will continue to go, will go in circles because that person will say something like this. I just, I just wish God would choose someone else to talk to me. I just wish God would choose someone else. I mean, yeah, I know there's, I know that person, and they all say, but I just wish it would be someone else. I mean, I just wish God would find some other way to talk to me about that truth that I'm ignoring. That wrong that I'm trying to justify as being right. I mean, I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't be that. I know that truth is wrong. But if God would just speak through someone else, then I'd actually listen. Why couldn't God talk to me through someone else? You know, I, part of it, I think, too, is that I know, I know for me, this is something I struggle with, is that we... So many of us, we picture Jesus showing up in our lives and, and speaking like some kind of live-action superhero. Chris, I have arrived. It's Jesus, and I have something to say to you. You will go. And I, it's, it's understandable. We have this, we, we more often than not, though, more often than I think we care to realize or accept, Jesus speaks and works in our lives through ordinary, everyday, common people around us. Allow me to push this just a little bit further. If we were to go through all the Gospels together, one, all four, go through the book of Acts, and I would ask you the question, in walking through it with you, where does Jesus spend most of his time speaking and revealing the kingdom? What would we find? Where does Jesus spend most of his time speaking and revealing the kingdom? The answer is among the wrong kinds of people. The answer is among the outsiders, the fringe, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, all the people who are offensive. Sometimes we dismiss Jesus working and speaking in our life because we dismiss certain kinds of people whom we're convinced Jesus couldn't possibly be associated with. That guy who's talking to himself who smells that Muslim, that liberal, that conservative, that homosexual, Jesus couldn't possibly be speaking through them. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, it's, there's no way God could be speaking through that person because they're not a Christian, and if they're not a Christian, then God can't speak through them. Really? Have you read the Bible? Have you read the scriptures? You want to talk about shock? You want to talk about offense? That's A number one. If that's one of the number one reasons it probably gets Jesus put up on the cross. The wrong kind of people. Let me put it a little bit even further. 
Many of you I know, and I mean this with, with deep respect and sensitivity, many of us have people in our lives, on our hearts, names will come to your mind, faces, that we want to lead to Christ, that we're trying to share Jesus and his kingdom with. Maybe friends, coworkers, family, neighbors, whoever. Let me ask you this. For those people, those names, those faces you have before you, as much as you are trying, as we are trying to convert others to Christ, as much as we are trying to share the kingdom with them, how open are we to the possibility that Jesus, in fact, might be speaking to us, revealing himself to us through them? Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't, this person's life is such a train wreck. This person is heathen with a capital H, okay? You, you, know, you don't understand. It's a one-way conversation. I'm bringing them to the Lord. Salvation is coming through me to them. I'm bringing Jesus to them. You see, they, has it ever occurred to you, and this is talk about, talk about scandal, that maybe the reason why God has brought you into that relationship is not so much for what you have to offer them, but what Jesus has to offer you to say to you through them. Or is that just too offensive? Beloved, maybe we don't know. Maybe we don't perceive Jesus as well as we think we do. Familiarity may breed contempt, but we can choose to reject it. For the people of Nazareth, their offense towards Jesus led them away from Jesus. But just because this is the tendency doesn't mean it is necessary. The invitation and challenge of following Jesus was put before the people of his hometown just like it had put before, been put before everyone else in every other town. They had a choice. They could have followed Jesus despite their lack of understanding. And eventually we know the scriptures tell us that Jesus' family did. What I want you to understand is all they had to do, all we have to do is follow him. All they had to do was follow him, but instead they kicked him out of town and out of their lives. And the truth of this is punctuated by the next scene that you heard me read that Mark gives us. As Jesus leaves Nazareth, he sends out and empowers his disciples to be representatives of his kingdom in his stead. As they head out in pairs among strangers, the various signs and wonders witness the number of people receiving the good news of the kingdom of God stand in sharp contrast to the lukewarm reception, and as Mark says it, just a handful of miracles that took place in Nazareth. In other words, the disciples are wildly successful. Don't lose me. Stick with me on this. This is so big. The disciples are wildly successful. They witness and participate in the glorious affirmation of the Lord's reign here on earth. They exercise and experience the power of the kingdom, the authority that brings healing, freedom, and salvation. The disciples are wildly successful. Wait for it. Even though they've been completely clueless up until now. Go back and read it. Mark is the harshest one. They're completely clueless up till now. They haven't demonstrated any incredible aptitude or skills. If Donald Trump was Jesus, they're fired. <laughs> they haven't passed any certification or licensing tests. If anything, if you look back, they've constantly been stubbing their toes. Their feet are bleeding. Their feet are in their mouths. They're getting it all wrong, all the way to Nazareth. So what the heck? What gives? What's the difference? The difference is they just continued to follow Jesus. They were stumbling and falling 
all the way, but they just kept depending upon Jesus. Prior to this, Jesus had taken them on a series of hands-on ministry experiences. They've watched and they listened as Jesus preached and taught with authority. They didn't completely get it. They often were scratching their heads, but they just kept following Jesus. They saw and took on, took, took in the power of the kingdom, exercised through Jesus. They witnessed the results of that power and authority, the healing, the calm, the liberation, and the victory. They didn't get it. They often got it wrong, but they continued to follow Jesus. And now they are sent out. Can we all agree that if we were writing a story, they would not be sending them out right now? They're sent out. Not on their own authority, not under their own power, but as extensions of Jesus' authority, as conduits of the power of Christ. And they preach good news built on a message of repentance. Pay attention, evangelists. The message that they send is a message of repentance. The word they bring is not that God has a wonderful plan for your life. The word they bring, no, is yield. Surrender. Die to yourself. Surrender your life to Jesus and his kingdom, and then your life will be completely turned around as well as upside down. Their message reflects their own journey, the obedience of their own discipleship as Jesus tells them, and they obey with the bare, by journeying with the bare minimum. No extras, no resources, no more than they need. They journey without begging, but looking nonetheless to the Lord through the kindness of strangers. They are sent out and they go, facing the threat of persecution and death. Can you imagine being sent out after the reception Jesus gets in his hometown? I mean, they've been clueless up to now. Do you think, they're go you think that in their own confidence? Okay, so Jesus went back home and that was a train wreck. But now we're going to go out to people we don't know. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> they go out facing the threat of persecution and death. And no doubt they encounter rejection. Let's not glaze over this. No doubt along the way they encounter rejection and failure, the failure of kicking the dust off their feet. And yet, notice this, they performed more miracles and brought more people into the kingdom than Jesus did in his own hometown. Through it all, in the end, their efforts are fruitful, game-changing, world-changing, life-changing, not because of their understanding, not because of their skills, not because of their brilliance, but simply because they relied upon and trusted Jesus. Beloved, can we do that? I think we can. Can we do that? I think we can. Can you do that? I think you can. I know you can. I'm the most clueless person there is. And if I'm standing up here, let alone I'm serving as your pastor, if God can do that through me, and I'm not trying to diss myself, but if, if that can be, then there's got to be room for everybody. <laughs> Beloved, two things amaze Jesus again and again in the Gospels. Do you ever notice that? And that's a word that we don't use a lot with Jesus, amaze. But two things amaze Jesus again and again in the Gospels. Do you know what they are? The two things that amaze Jesus again and again, faith and the lack thereof. Two things that amaze Jesus again and again in the Gospels, faith and the lack thereof. And we make faith into all kinds of things. We go through confirmation class, Bible studies, and we make, do word studies, and we make faith into this big, big thing. Faith is this simple, as Jesus presents it. Faith is pursuing, submitting, and depending upon him. Pursuing, Submitting and depending upon him. That's faith. 
Beloved, the longer we walk with the Lord, the stronger we should become. Stronger in our pursuit, stronger in our submissions, submission, stronger in our dependence. And yet, the tragedy, the warning of this story is that the prophet, the man sent from God, receives honor everywhere except in his own hometown, among his own kin, and in his own house. Church, please hear that. Is Jesus amazed by our faith in him or is Jesus amazed by our lack of faith? The tragic irony of what happens in Nazareth is that up until then, nearly everyone else, as Mark describes it, has been amazed by Jesus. But now here in Nazareth, Jesus finds himself amazed by the lack of faith in his old stomping grounds. I ask you again, if Jesus were coming to our community today, would he be amazed by our faith our pursuit, our submission, our dependence upon him, or would he be amazed by the lack of it? Familiarity breeds contempt, but if you know the saying, so does ignorance. Let's be wary. Let's be sensitive. Let us notice how our over-familiarity with Jesus can impact our following of Jesus. Let's be offended by Jesus. Let's be offended by Jesus. Not so we blow him off, but so that we actually wake up so that we actually follow him, pursue him, submit and depend upon him. Let's be observant. May we be observant. May we be teachable and open to all the Lord wishes to share with us. And may we rejoice, and this is the best news of all, may we rejoice that as we seek to be submissive, dependent, open, teachable, let's rejoice that the formula for success, the recipe for fruitfulness on our own and in our world is not about our wisdom, it's not about our skills. It's not even about our understanding or our own resources. It's about our dependence, our yielding, our surrendering, our trusting Jesus to reveal himself to work through ordinary and commonplace people like us. Ordinary, commonplace people like us. It is scandalous. It is. It's outrageous. It may even be offensive to some of us but in its unfamiliarity to the world and in its unfamiliarity to us, there is no contempt. There is only love. Amen.